today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. After this, when Jesus knew that all was finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. It's lovely to be here with you. Uh, so many familiar faces to be here in Birmingham uh, in this room where I spent so much time and to be with you uh, for the next couple of days. There's a beautiful cathedral near where I live in England called Peterborough Cathedral. I went there last year for the first time for a Christmas service with my family. Upon entering the cathedral, you can't help but notice a very large object that hangs in the middle of the nave a giant red and gold crucifix with a more-than-life-size Jesus on it. You can't miss it. What I was especially struck by, however, was the inscription underneath the crucifix. There, in large capital letters, just under Jesus' feet, it reads in Latin, Stat crux dum volvitur orbis, which means, The cross stands while the world turns. I was not familiar with this phrase, but theologian that I am, I was immediately struck by it. Turns out that this phrase is the motto of the Carthusian monastic order. The cross stands while the world turns. Our reading today is one of the four accounts in the Bible of the death of Jesus of Nazareth by crucifixion under the Romans. It is one of the best known of all stories, and it is one of the most familiar of all images. It need hardly be said that a great many human beings have found this image to be one that resonates far beyond the sheer historical story that it tells. We do not say of most historical events 
that the very world turns around them. The cross is an event and an image that has been found to be so thick, so pregnant with meaning that attempts to make sense of it have called forth new theological languages, new metaphysical languages, new artistic and poetic languages. Just the challenge of painting Jesus on the cross has produced enormous innovation. And so it's a curious thing that our passage seems on the face of it relatively uninterested in explaining what the event on the cross actually means. Why is this particular death, this particular atrocity, with all its strange details, so significant? And it is clear in the text that the author of John's Gospel does think that it is extremely significant. We see this above all in the three climactic words that culminate the passage, Jesus' words from the cross, it is finished. A good case can be made that these words mark the climax or culmination of the whole story that John has to tell. But what is it exactly that is finished? At first read, the passage seems preoccupied with small details. We learn about what the soldiers did with Jesus' clothes, that they gambled for them. In the adjacent passage, we learn who will take care of Jesus' mother when he's dead. We learn the fact that Jesus got thirsty and that if you want to give a drink to someone on a cross, a good method is to put a sponge on a stick. We learn about what the soldiers did to make sure he was dead, piercing his side with a spear. These are small details compared to what John seems to think is happening. But closer inspection reveals a different story. What the text is actually doing with these details is giving us a kind of interpretive key to help us understand what's happening on the cross. Each of the fulfilled prophecies points us to texts in the Old Testament. The thirsting but being given only vinegar to drink is from Psalm 69. The part about how none of his bones shall be broken is from Psalm 34. And the thing about looking on the one they have pierced is from Zechariah 12. Reading these Old Testament texts, which I confess I had not done until relatively recently, the meaning of it is finished starts to come into focus. For these texts are all thematically very similar. They are all texts about salvation, deliverance, and forgiveness. Psalm 69, where the vinegar bit comes from, begins with the line, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. And really, the whole of that psalm is a great cry to be saved. Rescue me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Do not let the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Make haste to answer me. I am in distress. Draw near to me. Redeem me. Set me free. That is the text that we're being drawn to. Psalm 34 is a meditation on the fact that our God is a God who saves Quote, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The psalm ends with the line, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The most striking of all, however, is the reference to Zechariah. The verse immediately after the paragraph about piercing in Zechariah 12 is a prediction that on the day of this piercing, quote, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That's chapter 13, verse 1. It's clear for anyone familiar with Zechariah that we are, what we are meant to understand 
uh, about the flow of water and blood from Jesus' side is that it is this very fountain, the fountain for cleansing from sin and impurity. That's what this water and blood are about. And it is this last reference in particular that takes us back to the beginning of John's Gospel, where John the Baptist explains what this story we're reading is all about. Seeing Jesus, John the Baptist twice cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is on the cross that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So this is what the crucifixion means. It's an action of an act of salvation and deliverance. It's a resolution to the problem of what Martin Luther King Jr. once called the glaring reality of the gone wrongness of the world. It is the divine answer to the terrible fact of the existence of sin. In the history of theology, you may well know, there have been a number of different ways of understanding exactly how this might work. Ways of understanding why this man's death could be a deliverance from sin and a putting right of all the gone wrongness. For example, the lamb image speaks the language of covenant sacrifice and the Passover lamb, the language of atonement, that there is somehow power in blood to right wrongs and transfer punishment. The image of a sacrificial lamb also implies a logic of substitution. Jesus dies so that we don't have to. The water imagery from Zechariah is all about cleansing and purifying. and is taken up in Christian tradition in the sacrament of baptism. As water washes the body clean of dirt, so the death of Jesus has power to wash the soul. Psalm 69 evokes existential plight with the image of drowning in the mire, sinking with no foothold, until someone comes to pull us out. When you and I are sinking in the mire, drowning in the dark, it is this man on the cross who can pull you out. All these images, themes, mechanisms are present. All are true, and all are part of the deep resonance of the crucifixion, as it is described in John 19, even if it's just a little bit indirect. But we might wonder, sitting here, as we are, at a little afternoon, on a day in March 2023, a bright spring day, we might wonder whether, whether anything is really finished at all. The world is not well. The world order we've known, that I've known growing up, seems to be creaking. There are ominous movements on the global stage. There's war in Europe for the first time in a lifetime. We live in a cultural moment, I need hardly remind you, full of anger and distrust and polarization. Not so long ago we learned to fly to the moon, and now the height of technical achievement, uh, the singular scientific innovation of the last few years is a chatbot that helps uh, undergraduates cheat at writing essays. But, and we feel more disconnected from each other than ever. Just think of how many millions of people will spend their evening tonight mindlessly scrolling alone in their bed. How many of us will be doing that? When we look outside of ourselves at the world around us, it seems hard to say that it is finished. And I'm not sure things are much better when we look inside. For many of us, life is very difficult personally. We hear about a mental health epidemic, and we can read about that, but it's actually how many of us know friend after friend and loved one after loved one who is suffering from depression and anxiety? Or 
equally likely maybe it's you who are the sufferer. Many of us are lonely. Many of us are disappointed. Pretty much all of us are stressed. Each of us has reasons here in this church today to fear that it is not finished at all. So how are we then to coordinate these two realities? The reality of a late winter morning in 2023 and the reality of a world where it is finished. The poet T.S. Eliot, with whom I am a little obsessed these days, the poet T.S. Eliot spent much of his later life reflecting on this very problem. His question was this, what is the relation between our day-to-day reality, the world of gas prices and business decisions and trying to function with low-grade depression, and the other world, the world of the spirit, the world of eternity, the world which requires tools like poetry and metaphysics and ancient scriptures to describe. In terms of our gospel text this afternoon, how is it that the execution on the hill described in John is not just a tragic accident of history, but is something about which it is somehow right to say the cross stands while the world turns? In his pageant play, The Rock, Eliot's answer is that we need to be reminded that in some sense both stories are true, both worlds are real, and that each human life is a kind of intersection point between time and eternity. He puts it like this in the play with words that he puts in the mouth of Jesus. Remember, all you who are numbered for God, in every moment of time you live where two worlds cross. In every moment, you live at a point of intersection. Remember, living in time, you must live also now in eternity. You live at where two worlds cross. You live at a point of intersection. Remember, living in time, you must live also now in eternity. But what does it mean to live at the point of intersection? but to live also now in eternity. I think it means two things at least, and here I come towards a close. First, the point of intersection between worlds is a place where there is hope beyond all hope. It is a place where the story on the newsfeed is neither the only story nor the final story. Eternity is not limited by the circumstances of the present. It's a place where death by crucifixion is not a final act. Concretely, for you and me today, I think, to recognize that we live at the point of intersection is a call to resist the spell of despair about the present. It is to see a horizon beyond what the world sees, a horizon of life and possibility and resurrection, no matter how dark the circumstances. What we see is so limited. God is so very big. So to live also in eternity is to live in hope, even when you don't have reason for hope. Second, the point of intersection is a place where sin is forgiven. The place where the world of our day-to-day lives meets the world of a hilltop outside of Jerusalem is a place where grace is extended where the failures of the past do not determine the possibilities of the future. 
whatever burden you are carrying with you, whatever burden I am carrying with me, whatever weight of past decisions is hemming you in, whatever it is this afternoon that you wish you could change or undo, it is already over. Its power is broken. The situation has been resolved for good. The Lamb of God really has taken away the sin of the world. So do not be misled by voices that tell you there can be no new beginnings. The one who hangs suspended at the center of all things has done something that cannot be undone. He died to bring hope to the hopeless and new beginnings for all who live in a mess of their own making. It is finished, and something new has begun. Living in time, we must live also now in eternity.